Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Jonathan Leaf, a celebrated playwright. He has a new play, Deconstruction, that's enjoying a run at St. Mary's Church here on Grand Street in New York City. Deconstruction tells the story of the purported love affair between the famously beautiful novelist Mary McCarthy and her handsome young lover, Paul DeMann. He's also received rave reviews for his plays in The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Daily News. Jonathan, welcome aboard. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. So talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Trenton and went to Yale. Where did you get bitten by the writing bug? Uh, I don't know. I've always loved uh, reading. I think that plays a role. The interesting thing is that uh, I was in some plays at Yale, and I met these very theatrical people I could not stand. And I made a decision I didn't want to have anything to do with the theater ever again. <laughs> and um, then I went on a TV game show some years later, and I won some money, and I quit work for a year, and I decided I'd try to learn some of the things I did not learn in college when I was avoiding classes. And um, during the time, I got an idea for a play, and I showed it to friends, and they said, gee, this is pretty suspenseful. It's pretty interesting. You seem to have an ability to write dialogue. Um, maybe you should think about this. But, you know, I was determined. I was going to have nothing to do with theater people, theater people. <laughs> so um, it took me a while to actually get into writing plays. Stop back there. I heard you won money on a TV game show. Talk about that for a second. What happened there? I was out in L.A., and um, a number of people said, gee, you have a good memory. Why don't you try out for uh, TV game shows, uh, visiting relatives? And um, I tried out for Jeopardy, and I was incredible in the Jeopardy tryout, but they weren't taping at the time. And then I went to this other show that was sort of a ripoff of Jeopardy that Dick Clark was the host of, and I was terrible. I don't even know why they called me back. And somehow I got on the show, and I wound up winning a couple shows. Oh, that's terrific. So let's talk about deconstruction. Where did you get the idea to take on a love affair in 1949? What part of your experience made that compelling to you to dive in and generate a play out of it? Well, I guess I was not around at that time. <laughs> uh, you know, I start to feel I'm older, but maybe not that old. I've been fascinated by Mary McCarthy for a long time. People are not familiar with her. She was a really wonderful writer who was also a very acerbic personality and a very attractive woman. Of course, most intellectuals, I may be evidence of this, most intellectuals are not that attractive people. Oh, stop. And uh, had written about her in the past. Actually, for instance, had written an article for the Weekly Standard about her. And then I discovered there was a book that came out that suggested that she had a love affair with Paul DeMann, who was the, one of the main American proponents of the idea of deconstructionism. And uh, when I read about this, I found the argument persuasive. And I thought, gee, that's really an interesting story, particularly given that McCarthy eventually became best friends with Hannah Arendt, who was a lover of Martin Heidegger. And, of course, all the ideas of deconstruction really go back to Heidegger. So I thought, yeah, maybe it's an interesting idea for, uh, for play of ideas. And so uh, for, for those listeners who don't really know a whole lot about American deconstruction, what component of the concepts that underlie that makes that compelling or interesting in this day and age? Well, there are a bunch of different things. Actually, it's interesting. When we put out the press release for it, we mentioned that now there's this controversy about alternative truth and alternative facts. And a lot of that actually goes back to Heidegger and uh, deconstruction as, a, as, a, as, a, as an accepted philosophical concept. Um, if people encountered deconstruction in, in literature classes in college, they probably were familiar with this idea of language as a prison house, that language is profoundly limiting. It's actually note that most of the people who propose this idea have never actually spent time in prison houses. But in mm. any event, they have this idea that the world is inherently subjective, that there's no such thing as actual truth. It's how we perceive it. And also that time greatly distorts our ability to understand events. So this is a very influential school of modern philosophy. 
that came in and has had broad impact, particularly in the academy, but also outside it. And so with the debate with where people get their information from uh, and how to interpret it and you know, the biases from which the sources of information come from, uh, was that what triggered your involvement or is that something that sort of turned out to be a very convenient happenstance that makes what you put out uh, that much more compelling? I guess the second, I, you know, what first really interested me about the play was the character of Mary McCarthy. And um, the actress who's playing the part in the current production, Fleur Dobbins, has really captured something. I, I don't want her to know this until she finishes playing the role because yeah. it may influence her performance. But she's captured something which I tried to get on the page and which is not at all in the stage directions but that is uh, really interesting, which is that Mary McCarthy, I think, was a species of person that one encounters from time to time. It's a person who's almost like two people. They have this uh, public performance of who they are. And then occasionally he glimpses the real person. She was orphaned at age six. Her parents died in the Spanish flu epidemic. She came from a, a very interesting family. She was actually second cousin of Eugene McCarthy, the political candidate. Her maternal grandfather was one of the most influential lawyers in um, Washington state and co-founded a, a law firm that Bill Gates' father later uh, was part of. And he was a friend of Woodrow Wilson's. But And she had this difficult childhood because you know she was without her parents and was shuffled around from an aunt and an uncle to the grandparents in Seattle. And when she became really successful, she was often playing a role. She was playing a role of this personality, Mary McCarthy. And I thought that was interesting. I just, you know, that and the fact that she was glamorous and beautiful, but also brilliant. There were a lot of things that made it an interesting personality for me. And I thought this would make an interesting character. And so she goes on the the arc of her journey throughout the play. Where are the sources of tension for her? And, and, and in a sense, I guess, what are you trying to communicate to the audience as she as she goes, I guess, for lack of a better word, on her quest to push forward with, with what she wants to achieve? Well, she's uh, – not to give away too much what happens in the play. She's seduced by demand. And, and there, as I say, there's compelling evidence that this actually happened and that he got her pregnant. And then I guess I am giving away a lot of the play that uh, she loses the child. And then some other things happen. But the sense that, that she's going through something, she's going through a process of discovery. Somebody who came to see the play said to me they thought in a way it was kind of a detective play, but not a detective play where there's a dead body, but where one or, or maybe two of the characters have to figure out. So it's actually only three, a three-character play, have to figure out who the third character is. And we're given a good deal of evidence at the beginning of the play, but it's not till the end that we find out. So let's go through the process of actually getting a play produced, which I think, uh, to me, that sounds unbelievably daunting. I, I uh, dabble in screenplays. I uh, work with a friend on graphic novels, and I sort of see how that works. And and it gets to a point where it's something that's actually much more complicated to produce and involves a lot more people. And I say, holy cow, I, I, I just don't know how people do it. In your case, you've been able to do a bunch of different things. You've had a book published detailing sort of the uh, sort of a revisionist history of the 1960s, which I think is a really cool idea. But then to be able to get something out on the out on the floorboards and produced, tell us a little bit about how you get from the blank page to the stage for a play. Well, you know, obviously you write the play and then you go through a process of readings where you bring actors in and you start to see what's wrong with the play and how you can – you think correct them. It's totally arbitrary. I mean a story I often tell people, which may sound unbelievable, is true. The first play I wrote that got any real notice uh, and actually wound up getting nominated for Best Off-Broadway Play of the Year, we got the money at a reading that we had – I forget if it was three or four people at the reading. We had four actors and we'd invited various people that we hoped would give us money to do the play. And we either had the same number of people in the audience or we had fewer people in the audience. And we actually had a discussion, the, the cast and uh, the director and, and me, 
you know, should we do this? And we thought, well, you know, they're here. Why not? And we wound up getting the money to do the play. There have also been occasions where we thought everything was lined up. It was going to happen in three months, and it didn't. So it's totally arbitrary, and I'm sure that the movie business is a much more extreme example of that. Perhaps the money is even bigger in some things. So people are making huge investments and a lot of things are done by committee. My guess would be that you have more control over over various parts of the process, i.e. maybe if you have revisions to the to the actual script, casting, location, set design, that type of thing. Maybe on the on the casting front, how does that work? Do you find yourself writing parts with people in mind? Is that a, is that sort of a shorthand way to get dialogue on the page that you may not have? Or do, how do you visualize that? Or I guess audio, audioize that? Um, I haven't really done that. Maybe one or two exceptions. I haven't really done that. But, you know, you're trying to write a good role. You're trying to write a role that somebody's going to really have fun with. Mm-hmm. And so once the role is in place and you've got the you've got the play there, what's the process with casting? Do you hire a casting director and then get a bunch of people in there? Or and then you have a reading and understand what people bring to the process and then choose it? Or is there something more uh, complex to it than that? Well, it, it depends a lot on what the director and if you have a, a solid producer, what the producer may want to do. The only experiences I've had with casting directors have been bad. Um, I think maybe there are better casting directors out there, though I don't know them. Um, it's usually a consensus process where the director's voice is the most important. But if anyone says categorically, whether the producer or the director or the writer says, I absolutely don't want this person, then you throw that person out. But the director is the most important person in terms of making a decision. So does the play evolve from performance to performance in your mind? Do you see things uh, even in a relatively short run where it starts out and then even after the first performance or after the fifth performance that that you think can be tweaked or done better? And it's one of those situations where I look at a play or or even a movie in some cases and maybe they look at it and say, geez, you know, I wish I thought of that and could change it. In a play setting, I guess you can. Uh, how much how much of that goes on? We change a lot in rehearsals. With this play, we actually had abbreviated rehearsals. We only really had three weeks of rehearsals instead of four, which is standard. Wow. So um, because it's a three-character play, though reasonably short, it's only about 75, 80 minutes, it was very hard for the actors to learn the lines just because they had so little time. So at some point, the director very reasonably said, don't change any more lines. So like the last week of the show, he basically said, don't change any more lines, which I, I think was the correct thing. But there are definitely a lot of things I would have liked to change. The last show I did, which I directed, it's the only show I've directed, we continued making changes all through the run of the show. And we probably cut five to 10 minutes during the course of the actual production uh, from the first performance to the last. And how much, if any, does improvisation uh, play a role in that? I imagine, I guess, the, you, you improvise in rehearsals maybe if you think you've got an idea, uh, but then maybe it changes later on or does that not exist? Not in my experience. I mean, maybe with other people. But um, no, I've never, I've never had actors improvise. What does happen I, I, for me, and I, I think other writers are smart to do this if they, if they do, very often writers will change your lines unintentionally. And you should write down the changes because often they're changing it the way that may sound more natural. And probably it's a better way to read the line. I mean, you may have structured the line in a way that's actually harder to read and uh, less natural. When you're doing the research to uh, write slash build a play, what do you do to look at vernacular of the era? Uh, I had someone on named Terrence McCauley 
done a lot of prohibition era work. And one thing that strikes me about his books is that he really takes a great pains to get that to sound right, or, or at least what I think would, would sound like in the 1920s. And so for this play in 1949, did you go back and do anything differently than you might have done if, than if you were uh, writing a play that was set uh, in the modern era? Yeah, I did look up some things. So for instance, one of the, uh, Mary McCarthy at one point says that she's a sharecropper. That's apparently a 1940s expression for promiscuous or easy to get in bed. I didn't know it. I mean, I looked it up. Um, I'm always impressed when people get those things right, and I think it's very important. Uh, there was a TV show, Boardwalk Empire, and uh, one of the characters in it, I noticed in an episode, said that someone was mighty white, W-H-I-T-E. That was actually a common expression in the 1920s. I was impressed that they, they, they knew that. I mean, it's obviously it's very objectionable today. Uh, it's a term of approbation. You know, like, you're a great guy. You're white. Uh, you're doing something uh, admirable. You're acting like a white person. But that was how people talked at the time. Right. So, they, you know, they caught it. Well, it's one of those things. I, I look back, uh, you know, a term that I think is funny to say, you know, a blotto for being drunk that came straight out of the 20s. And, yeah. and it, it's fun to sometimes reach back into the Wayback Machine and pull out some uh, verbiage that actually could be funny nowadays and certainly not expected. So when you are going through a play and actually going through the writing process of it, do you have a certain set of themes that you want to convey and then – wrap the story around that? Or are you trying to take a story that you like and then explore different things that you want to communicate to the audience? You know, this may be above my pay grade. I don't know. Um, essentially, the director told the leading lady that the first scene of the play had a certain meaning that had never occurred to me. And then we had someone come to the play and he said, I think the scene means X. I think this is what's going on. It never occurred to me. So I don't know. Well, maybe that's part of it. You just you're just trying to tell a story that is just interesting and strikes a chord with people. To that end, what other types of stories do you really groove on? Maybe it's a sort of backdoor way of asking what are the what are the influences that you really like, or, and what are you reading that helps to you know, sort of link the synapses together so that you can create something going forward. Gee, I don't know. I mean, I guess I could tell you the writers I like. Sure, fire away. Uh, gosh, there's so many. Um... I mean, in terms of playwriting, I'm a big fan of Shaw, Shakespeare, John Wee. There's contemporary playwrights I think are great. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Lynn Nottage, Warren Light, Kenneth Lonergan. And, you know, there's just so many There's so many great writers. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Isaac Bashevis Singer, Twain, Dickens, George Gissing, Fitzgerald, Don Powell, Richard Yates, Chekhov. Uh, you know, so many people just uh, I think are incredible. So to circle back to your background a little bit, talk to us about how you uh, went about your first play. At what point did you do that? What was your first real writing where you felt like you could do it and you felt like, you know what, I kind of like this. This is pretty good. Yeah, I wrote a play uh, which actually hasn't been produced yet, though. It's interesting. We did a reading of it quite a few years ago. It must be over a decade now that had such good audience response to it. We wound up getting written about in The New York Sun. But it's a big cast play and somehow it's never been done. But it, people, audiences seem to really love it. And that was the first play I wrote that uh, I was really like, gee, this is a pretty good play. Um, it turned out it needed some work, which I didn't know, but because <laughs> I never heard it read. But um, it's a, it's a very entertaining play. I don't know if it's profound, but it's very entertaining. Talk a little bit more about that. What does the play do? Um, it's about a young woman who goes. It's a comedy. Young woman goes to see uh, George Washington when the American troops are in Philadelphia before the Battle of Trenton, and uh, she says, "I'm pregnant," and one of your officers got me pregnant. Where is he? And Washington says, I don't even know this man's name. We don't have an officer by that name. And that kind of sets up the story. What motivated me to write that play was, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, I'm from Trenton. And I actually knew remarkably little about Trenton. 
uh, and it's revolutionary history. And I read a book by someone who's since become a good friend, Richard Brookheiser, the historian, and about Washington. And it really made me acutely aware of how little I knew, but how exciting those events were. Anyway, I was reading a play uh, that gave me an idea for how to write this play. And uh, people seem to like it. But it hasn't been produced. Comedy versus drama. Are those two different mindsets for you? Uh, is it difficult to execute one versus the other? Or do you feel like there's a, you have a affinity for one versus another? You know, I, I may be in a minority in this view, but it doesn't seem to be the case always. But in theory, if you're good at one, you should be good at the other because it's really a matter of perspective. I mean, somebody once said uh, if, if a woman is having an affair and a man is under her bed, that sounds like a situation for a farce, but actually it's tragic, right? I mean, it's very sad. It's just a matter of how you present it. Uh, I, I saw an unbelievable production of uh, Twelfth Night that was done by, I think it was Don Murray Harris. It had a, a big name cast, including Emily Watson, Mark Strong, Simon Russell Beale. It was unbelievable. But it was, you know, Twelfth Night is usually thought of as a raucous farce. It was very sad. It was very sad. I saw a movie last weekend where that razor's edge component to it really makes sense. It would get out the, yeah. the horror movie yeah. uh, with Jordan Peele who wrote and directed it. And it, on its own merits, I think Get Out does well uh, as a sort of Tales from the Crypt horror classic. Uh, but there are other parts of it that are just unbelievably funny and, and, and taken – uh, to one extreme or the other, you could have made the movie more gory and made it more traditionally horror, or you could have gone the other way and made it a little bit funnier and maybe made it a bit more farcical. He had a really good balance between the two, I thought. And so that really underscores the point that, that I'm not necessarily equating horror and drama, but hopefully there's some parallel there. But to be able to balance between the two and do it well, it did both well. It was both funny when it wanted to be and it was scary when it wanted to be. But then underneath all of it, there was a great subtext and, and satire and criticism to it that I think really made you think, which is oftentimes not why I go to a horror movie or to a comedy. And I, I was very surprised at what I what I got out of it. Well, you know, actually talking about comedy, I'm not a fan of Neil Simon. I have deep ambivalence about him. I, I, in fact, in some ways, I really rebel against a lot of his work. But the guy, there's no question he was a tremendous, I say past tense because he's not writing anymore, though he's still alive. He was a tremendous technician of comedy. He really knew what he was doing, how to get the characters on and off the stage, how to write the line that's going to get the laugh, everything else. And he said... Uh, no matter how clever a line you write, the audience isn't going to laugh unless there's dramatic tension. You have to have dramatic tension. There has to be some sort of conflict, seduction, or negotiation in the scene, whether it's comedy or tragedy, or whether you're looking for a comic response or pathos. So we mentioned before that you wrote a book about the politically incorrect history of the 60s. So before I dive into that a little bit, I thought it would be interesting to hear whether there's any major differentiation between writing a, a book like that versus writing uh, a play where you're giving a lot more visual cues and uh, maybe setting more of a storyboard uh, for people to be able to access the story. Is that tougher, different, uh, more interesting to go one versus the other in terms of format? Well, I would say, yeah, I would say it's totally different. I mean, uh, that was a, a for-hire project. I was, I was asked by the publisher to write the book, and um, they had an idea of what the book was supposed to be. So I was trying to do what they wanted, and they were happy with it, though they made a variety of changes as well. I just wanted to please them. So they had a certain tone they wanted. They had certain chapters they wanted. You know, you're, you're doing work for hire. Right. So how did that work? How did, how did you get on the radar screen for that? As somebody else I know was asked to do it, and he said, I'm not really perfect for this one, and you asked Jonathan. So I went to meet with him and persuaded them I should do it. 
So with the with the playwright background, uh, and it seems to be the area of focus for you, generally speaking, are you interested in TV or movies? Uh, and and uh, that that's a whole subculture unto itself. Uh, how does a playwright translate into those worlds? Obviously, you're telling uh, stories that are meant for, uh, let's say, visual access, uh, much the same way TVs and movies are. Is, are there significant differences that make that leap a little bit different? No, you know, I, I think if you're able to do one, you should have some degree of skill at the other. I actually have written two screenplays that have uh, relatively well-known actors attached to do them. And we hope in the not-too-distant future find the money to do them for low-budget, meaning, you know, let's say one, two, three, four million dollars right. features. Um, one's a comedy, one's a thriller. It's actually based on a play of mine, the play I mentioned earlier that um, we got nominated for some awards for. You know, I think a play is probably 65% of what you're conveying is through the dialogue. And I would say a movie, it's probably 35%. So, you know, that you can write dialogue is definitely very useful and important. But, you know, so much more of it is, is visual. It's non, nonverbal. I don't know if this is a cliche, but somebody told me a story that um, they hired some back in the 1930s when, when black and white films were uh, very reliant on dialogue and often on writers brought in from New York, that they were trying to depict a, a failing marriage. And they hired some writer, wrote a four-page scene of dialogue, you know, man and a woman are arguing, they're married. And uh, then they brought in somebody else and he said, this is all you have to do. You have them go into an elevator. He's wearing a hat. An attractive woman comes onto the elevator and he takes off his hat. And he's with his wife beside him. You know, often that's much more effective. Uh, so, you know, um, you have to figure out how to tell a story. I mean, someone like Spielberg, you know, he's often saying to the writers, forget the line of dialogue. Show, show, show me a way to do this visually. Well, in a case like Jaws, he he, he didn't even have all the visual tools. He yeah. had to rely on yeah. he had to rely on John Williams to convey the story. <laughs> uh, so, with deconstruction, uh, what's the next step for that play? What are your ambitions for it, and uh, how do you make that happen? Uh, again, another production which I've been talking with the producer about. So, we would like to we would like to do it again. So then what's next for you? The, you've, you've got the project with the, you know, whatever your next step is with deconstruction. Uh, what are you looking to do next? Well, I think there are th uh, probably three things. Uh, I have a play that was translated into French and they're trying to develop it in France, which I'd love to do here. But, you know, so far, despite the fact that I actually won an award at the Actors Studio, nothing's really happened with it. Also comedy. Um, and then we've raised a good deal of money to do a play of mine. It's actually my favorite play. And we hope to do it maybe in the next year. And we just get we got to find somebody to work with on it, uh, an institutional theater. And then uh, I finished a nonfiction book, which I just signed with uh, Gary Morris of a David Black Literary Agency uh, about, and we're reworking the proposal. The book itself is written, and uh, I'm really excited about that. It's about why golden ages of civilization happen. Golden ages in. Yeah. Uh Pericles' Golden Age. Exactly. Oh, you got it exactly right. Unbelievable. My that synapse fired too. <laughs> Sometimes I surprise myself. So, what's the best way to keep in touch with your whereabouts? I have a website. Uh, so, what, so what is your website? Uh, just look for Jonathan Leaf online. Okay. Uh, L E A F, and um, people probably shouldn't have too hard a time finding it. Uh, this play is being put on by Storm Theater Company, which is a fantastic theater company that's celebrating its 20th anniversary. Okay. They have um, gotten rave reviews from the uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. And they do a lot of – not only are they a fantastic company, they did one of the best uh, play productions I've ever seen uh, in a tiny, tiny little theater a few years ago. This was a production of the straight play, this uh, Gigi, not the musical. Heartbreaking, beautiful. Uh, but they do also do – in that example, they do a lot of stuff that other people don't do. Like they've done Cornet. Who in New York does Cornet? 
you know, a really interesting company and a fantastic director, uh, Peter Dobbins, who's by far the best director I've ever worked with uh, on a play that we got produced. Terrific. Jonathan, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the Fraser Rice podcast. You've been listening to my conversation with Jonathan Leaf, celebrated playwright whose new play, Deconstruction, enjoying a run at St. Mary's Church on Grand Street. If you go to FraserRice.com, you can check out the archive of podcasts that we've been amassing over the last couple of months. Additionally, we should have new episodes coming out in a short time. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.